Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, folks. Thank you guys for joining me. I have Lee Petty here with me, and uh, and we're going to start off with this first piece of advice, the hot tip. <laughs> how to? How, is this a hot tip for how to get a job or how to uh, keep a job? It's really just a kind of a life. It's a life hack, is what it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a revolutionary idea. Uh, it took <laughs> me like three three decades to learn this, but. <laughs> And, uh, and the hot tip for those who are listening and uh, aren't able to see it is don't be an asshole. That's, an asshole. Uh, yeah. that's the way we start. Well, inevitably, uh, you know, people uh, ask, um, you know, how do I get started? What, what do I do? How do I stand out from the crowd? And I don't know that not being an asshole will make you stand out from the crowd, but it is, it is one, of those, um, <laughs> one of those ways where you can just kind of probably be better than 20% of your competition. Uh, you know, so many... <laughs> It's uh, it's an important thing, and as you grow in your career, to kind of keep that in mind is to not be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it says hot tips. Are there more? Oh yeah, we got some more. So we got don't be an asshole. Uh, and okay, what do I mean by don't be an asshole? I mean, you know, it's it means that no matter how talented you are, you're not going to get away with just that if you're also unpleasant to work with. If you mm -hmm. can't communicate or don't want to communicate, you can't collaborate. You think your ideas are better than everyone else, even if they are. You have to still like incorporate everyone else into it because ultimately everything you're working on is made by multiple people. So don't be that person. Uh, also, uh, I say this a lot. People ask about. Um, you probably deal with this a lot too when people are putting together portfolios uh -huh. about they want to show a little bit of everything. Uh, and I always feel like you need to kind of, especially if you're just trying to get into the industry, uh, you know, you've got to build up one primary skill. But I think it's important to keep developing others. Um, and maybe you don't show them in your portfolio until they're really strong. Uh, but that keeps you engaged with your career. And it also uh, opens up options. You know, I uh, Double Fine, it, the teams we have here at Double Fine Productions are relatively small. So I use a lot of different skills that I built up over the years. But I got hired here as an art director because that was kind of my primary focus through most of my career. But day to day, I do... Um, when I'm leading projects, I actually do quite a bit of game design and level design and writing. I do 3D modeling. I do a whole lot of lighting work. Mm -hmm. um, and those are all skills I've kind of developed uh, over time. Uh, let's see. I got uh, communicate well. That's another one. Uh, it, uh, you know, a lot of stuff comes down to just good human communication, like listening to others and um, trying to articulate your thoughts. And you don't necessarily have to be the best writer or completely comfortable with public speaking. But if you develop those skills over time, um, it'll definitely give you an advantage over a lot of people. A lot of people are very, very uncomfortable with those roles. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of being an artist, um, especially a concept artist, uh, is kind of selling people on your ideas. And if you're uh, comfortable communicating and are good at it, it's really going to serve you well. And I think, uh, lastly, I got this work hard but don't burn out. Um, you know, that's different for everyone um, and maybe different parts of your career, career. Maybe when you're, you know, when you're 20, you're okay working 60 hours a week all the time. Um, it's really up to you as an individual to determine what that is. But um, keep in mind that uh, if you if you love what you're doing and you want to be doing it, I've been doing this now for like 23 years, uh, you've got to find a way to kind of balance, you know, balance the, your workload out so you can work very focused, generate 
results, but don't fry your brain. Uh, a lot of people that uh, I started in the industry with uh, kind of all burned out after five years. You know, there was a really high curve, um, and uh, I saw the same sort of um, same sort of problems where they just didn't develop, you know, a consistent way of working, and so they would go through all these peaks and valleys all the time and really kind of be stressed and burn themselves out. And you know, that's that's inherent to the creative process to some extent. But right. um, I think if you can normalize it as much as you can, you're gonna you're gonna last longer in the industry and um, and hopefully everyone wants that. Yeah. So, so those are my those are my yeah those are just my broad hot tips for any developer really or any artist. But yeah. Okay. Let's unpack a few of those because um, the second yeah. one, focus on one primary skill but develop others, is something that uh, a lot of as you alluded to, it's, it's something we deal with a lot at Game Art Institute. And um, and in the decade or so that I've been training, you know, one of the things that always people have, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's because of um, our insecurities, but there's a tendency to want to spread ourselves out so that we don't put all our eggs in one basket. There you go. There's, we got a phrase. There's even a phrase for it. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> but what we've noticed over the years is that, especially in games, I mean, definitely in film, but games is now even starting to go into more of a specialized um, sort of system, right? And uh, yeah. And it has to be good enough. Like it's not enough to be good. That's those days are gone. You used to, if you were mm -hmm. good in ZBrush 15 years ago, you know you'd find it. But now that's not the case. You got to be, you got to be good enough. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're looking yeah. at that, you know, in terms of focus on your on one primary skill, what it, what else? What other advice can we give people? You know, who who are like, but but you know, what if this company doesn't want that skill or you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a couple of a couple of ways of thinking about that that are related is, um, you know, you are not going to be hired for some secondary or tertiary skill. Probably, odds are, let's just say ninety-eight percent of the time, if you're kind of new to the industry and you're like, okay, I really want to be a concept artist, that's where I've spent all my time. But hey, I'm kind of a shitty model or two, so I'm going to throw in a couple crappy models, <laughs> and just in case, you know, they're looking for a modeler, they'll pick me, and that that doesn't work out. It just shows that. You're a crappy modeler. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's part of it is um, if you're trying to get hired, you know, these these are these are techniques for getting hired. Right. If you want to get hired, you don't want you want to basically uh, have someone look at your portfolio or resume and understand exactly where you fit in with the pipeline. You don't want to say, well, hey, I can do all these things. You tell me where I fit in because you, you probably will never have that conversation. Um, now, that being said, there are smaller developments, you know, both in terms of um, games and, and to some extent film and other industries where, you know, they do tend to hire more generalists. But when they say generalists, they don't mean someone, um, you know, who's not good at uh, five things. They mean someone who's like really good at one thing and like pretty damn good at two or three or four things. Uh, you know, and it's uncommon that you you start your career off with those skills. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you really are better off focusing on that. Uh, if someone sees something magical, let's say you, you know, let's say you're a, a character modeler and you make these amazing character models, but you know, you're an okay environment model. But if someone really sees that and is like, man, this is magical, I wonder if this guy can also do props. I know they might reach out to you in those cases because your other stuff is so strong. Um, but, you know, it, it can sometimes only just take a few bad elements in your portfolio to get someone to look for an excuse not to hire you because there's probably so many people applying for any given position. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
And, you know, I think, but, but I do think it's important for career growth to keep developing other things. Um, I mean, if you happen to be someone who's only interested in one thing, that's great. Um, but, you know, one of the things I, I talk about, too, is that that primary skill that's in uh, demand changes over time. You know, when I first started uh, in the industry, which was back in um, the dark ages known as the mid-90s, um, you know, <laughs> when, I, when I started in there, uh, the, it was, there was no, like anyone who was a 3D modeler. Now, I started as a production 3D modeler because um, it was like the PlayStation 1 had just come out. Like 3D mm -hmm. add-on cards for PC were kind of new. And there were no schools teaching 3D, like absolutely zero. The only way you learn 3D is either, you know, maybe you came from a related field like CAD development. You picked it up yourself, which is in my case, or you know you paid uh, Silicon Graphics like ninety thousand dollars for a certificate, you know. Um, but basically, no one knew 3D, so that was a skill that at the start of the era was really in demand. Um, when I started the company I started at, which was a company called Accolade, mm -hmm. most of the artists there were were 2D artists because they had been using D Paint to make 2D sprite-based games. And I, over the like sort of first two years I was there, I watched all of them, pretty much all of them, lose their jobs. Um, because um, for one of two reasons, either they just couldn't wrap their head around 3D at all, um, or they were unwilling or uninterested. And that's fine, right? Like you can make that choice, and I think it's fine to recognize what you, you are or aren't interested in. Um, and so for a long time, you know, there was such a demand for 3D artists, both environment and character artists. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years later or so, um, it's kind of the opposite. You know, we, we, the fidelity of video game hardware had been increasing. Schools have been pumping out 3D artists. And now everyone really, uh, there was a demand for concept artists and material artists. And there weren't really that many of those people around at that point. Uh, and so it kind of swung the other direction. And 3D, if you only knew 3D, you know, it was harder to get a job. So um, for me, uh, you know, I got hired on the strength of, um, of a particular skill. But I always try and keep that in mind. You know, right now I'd say the hottest thing is if you're a visual effects artist, like you can't get hired fast enough. <laughs> you know, if you're a concept artist right now, well, there's a million concept artists out there. So, but whatever that is changes. So I think um, even though I'm saying, you know, focus on a primary skill to get hired, the importance of developing others and kind of over the course of your career is it'll help you kind of weather those changes um, as they come up. That makes sense. Um... You've had a 23-year career. How how it's, has uh, what you do shifted throughout the year? Um, you know, because I, I think that that's – I'm really interested to explore the longevity of your career um, and how you mm -hmm. feel about that. But, like, just what are the big broad strokes? What did you start out doing? How did that change? What do you do now? Yeah. Um, so when I started out, as I was saying a little bit there, you know, I started um, – I started in video games. Now, I guess right out of school, um, mm -hmm. I had got I had a P, I got a BFA in painting and drawing from San Jose State. Um, I originally went in. Uh, I wanted to go to art school, but it was too expensive. I didn't come from a affluent family, and I didn't want to be in debt for the rest of my life. So I went to a state school that had a really solid art program, but was a lot more affordable. And I went in with the intention of being an illustrator, going to the illustration program. But I found myself more in love with the idea of painting, um, yeah. and so I kind of switched to to painting and and uh, it was kind of frustrating for me though at the same time because I feel like I didn't learn some of the fundamentals of drawing as as well as I should have because I switched and a lot of my painting teachers were uh, I guess what I call aging modernists you know very interested mm -hmm. in the abstract flatness mm -hmm. of the canvas and uh, I of course was a little more interested in narrative and representational art uh, but 
um, looking back on it now, I, I do a lot of uh, stuff with color, and I really think I got that from from that painting class. Um, mm -hmm. But but anyways, I I kind of graduated, and I was like, well, how do I make a living now? You know, and um, I I did spend some time working in um, a production company, and I did do like uh, film and video editing and compositing on early nonlinear editors, and uh, I did um, early web page and sort of what would later become known as flash development uh, at the kind of uh, during that era, and mm -hmm. and I found myself, um, you know, in general, I wasn't super happy with the work. Like it wasn't creatively engaging enough for me. But what I did get out of that is I had to work with lots of different clients across all sorts of different media, and make sure that whatever sort of stylistic tenets and concerns there were would translate, you know, across all those different things as part of their sort of identity or campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that kind of like showed me how well, how good it was to communicate well and work with others and um, um, but I still wanted to get something, you know, kind of like closer to my heart. And so I, I did start working in video games. And, and like I said, it was kind of the start of the 3D era. And although I had plenty of 2D skills, I was always really good at picking up software. Um, and so I basically, um, let's say I found a copy of 3D Studio Max version 1 because it had, it had literally just come out. Um, and I got hired um, based on uh, some of the early work I did on that. Um, and uh, for a long time, um, you know, I... I was at Accolade for five or six years working in various forms of uh, 3D uh, and texture. And at that point, we didn't really have, there were artists and there were some programmers and there were no game designers and there was a producer. And as an artist, you um, kind of had to adapt to whatever was being thrown at you. So um, mm -hmm. in my case, it was uh, low poly 3D modeling and texturing and even some animation and effects work, all pretty primitive by today's standards. Uh, uh, but I, I kind of worked on a few different projects, and I wound up being promoted into a lead role, which I think, you know, by today's standards, was pretty early in my career. Um, so maybe I wasn't quite qualified, but part of it was because I was always um, <clears throat> very process-oriented and very interested in uh, communicating ideas uh, to others. So I was kind of a natural organizer. You know, even though I didn't go to art school to organize people, <laughs> or uh, mm -hmm. it, it's always kind of served me well. Uh, and so I kind of I kind of moved towards that track, and, and um, over time, um, moving from Accolade, I, I've been through a few video game companies. So I was at Accolade for five years. I um, after that I, I co-founded a small development studio called Circus Freak Studios. Um, we did cinematics for other games as well as um, shipping a game ourselves. And this is right around the start of the uh, when the first Xbox came out. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, went to Crystal Dynamics uh, for a good five years, shipped a number of games there. And then I've, I've been at Double Fine Productions now for about 12 years. And um, the arc that I kind of went on is, is that over time, I went from sort of a production artist to a lead artist, and I moved into art direction. And, um, you know, video game teams started getting bigger and bigger. And I um, maybe it's my, um, <laughs> I don't know, blue-collar upbringing or whatever, but I... I never, even though I recognize the value of an art director who doesn't actually do any work but just directs, I, I just never felt like I was doing my job unless I was keeping my hands dirty. So over time, I found myself wanting to go and work at a smaller studio where I could stay more directly involved, and that's when I uh, came to Brutal, uh, Brutal Legend. So I came to Double Fine Productions. My first project here was as an art director of the um, Brutal Legend, and mm -hmm. um, it was a pretty big team for us. Um, but after that, I kind of actually moved into being a Project director is what we call it here, which is uh, most people would call it a creative director. And uh, uh, so that meant I started pulling in uh, other skills I picked up over the time as part of that job. Um, so I still do art direction. The, the projects that I lead here tend to be 
smaller uh, nowadays. So there tend to be like 14 to 18 person teams. So um, that's kind of where I'm happier. Uh, and I wind up uh, doing the art direction and the creative direction as well as several production tasks. So I mentioned earlier, I'm really interested in color. So I do a lot of lighting and color design. Um, I do some concept work, although we usually have another concept artist or two on the team. Uh, and um, I do a lot of level design as well, which um, uses some of my uh, 3D uh, production art skills that I learned a long time ago. Hmm. Now, can you show your um, your website? Because Brutal Legends is there. Yeah, we've got a bit there. Okay, so let's see. We've got a couple of different versions. So we've got this website here. Uh, and let's see, yeah. Okay, so this one here, right? Yeah. So Brutal Legend, um, you know, is this kind of, open world heavy metal game uh, where Jack Black played the voice of the main character who was a roadie uh, who got transported uh, through time and space into the land of living heavy metal. And uh, so these are some, these are just some of the images I did with that there. So um, you can see like these are some 3D uh, models I created. Um, this is kind of a look I designed for the loading screens of the game. We wanted to go with kind of more of a woodcut look. Um, you know, it's kind of like trying to blend medieval uh, look with a little bit of uh, heavy metal, and uh, mm -hmm. we would kind of crossfade to the actual scenes in the game. Um, these are some, uh, again, some more marketing images. That I, <clears throat> excuse me, some marketing images that I did. Um, these are like an example of a lot of these little thumbnail drawings. You know, we had a pretty big team, so we had a lot of uh, dedicated concept artists, but you know, most of the concept artists that concept art that people see out there is the the really polished stuff that's done for marketing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's more it's closer to illustration than yeah. concept. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I put this in my portfolio because this is the sort of quick um, little environment thumbnail drawings that I do quite a bit as an art director, um, just to kind of help um, guide something. And they're not they're not super detailed, but they do the job uh, well. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Again, this is um, concept. Again, you can see this. This is sort of an actual working concept. It's not like a big giant, uh, you know, polished color mood piece with this thing breaking over the hill and lightning striking in the background. Although those are fun to paint, this is much more of a production uh, drawing, just showing kind of scale and kind of like the construction of some of these shapes and uh, we're, some um, color notes. We're looking at a kind of a creature concept, a spiky creature, and you're breaking down yeah. anatomy, and it looks like you're breaking down functionality. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Here's a, I think this is a screenshot of it in the game, okay. at the end of the game. It's kind of like this giant lamprey that would kind of, you kind of drive around in your uh, hot rod and it would kind of smash its head into the ground. Got it. Uh, yeah, you can see, again, I was doing some, um, also still doing some production materials. Um, when I first came to Double Fine, you know, they had shipped Psychonauts, but um, they hadn't really kind of moved over to a more, at the time, what would have been a more contemporary workflow. Does that mean including so, normal maps? Exactly, exactly right. So um, I had to work on this section of the game, this opening section here, where you kind of go down like, you know, I don't know, 300 foot bone pile. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, this was a pretty difficult thing to make back in then because of hardware limitations. So, you know, basically we, we sort of constructed it through a, a series of making tileable normal maps, which is kind of what you're looking at in the upper right here that was all made from models. Uh, this are all pretty standard practice nowadays, um, but back then this was, um, you know, a pretty tricky task given the size of textures and, and how many sort of, uh, how, the relatively limited complexity of the shaders you could have. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, you see, like, I worked a lot in the main character, so he had a demon mode, and um, these are some of the uh, textures I painted, uh, some of the concept work I did over here on the right. 
uh, and then some of the ZBrush construction of the, the wing. Um, we had a base uh, character form, but we didn't really have a, a demon mode, so I got to kind of work on that, which is great. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I mentioned that the studio didn't really have um, sort of a ZBrush workflow. So this uh, here is this giant sword. This is actually in the world. It's an area of the world called Blade Hinge. And so characters, you know, this tiny little, you'd be really small here. And so we had to come up with a, a methodology for constructing these things using um, just a few small low frequency textures. Um, and so this is like, you know, kind of flipped across four axes. Um, and then hidden with a little bit of blending on a, on a detailed normal map. So this was mm -hmm. kind of an accompanying image to a document I prepared for the team. Uh, and that is something I do a lot is, is kind of create these documents, which I can show some of those if you're interested as well. Yeah. Uh, and then here's uh, some screenshots from the game itself. This is kind of what it wound up looking like at the end of the day. Um, these are from Xbox 360. So, yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's take this a little bit more abstract. Um, your, your we can talk a tiny bit about this, but your studio was recently acquired, right? That's right. Yeah, okay. we um, we are we've been around uh, for almost 20 years now as an independent studio, and I've been 12 of the, 12 of those years. And um, just recently, uh, Microsoft acquired us. Um, and you know, Microsoft has uh, been acquiring, say, mid-sized, smaller game studios. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, as, uh, as, as you might be aware, we have this sort of upcoming generation transition. Um, both Sony and Microsoft have announced their upcoming hardware, um, you know, so next year is probably towards end of next year for, for both of them. I don't know if they have exact dates yet or not. Uh, and so usually in that time, uh, I, this is probably my fifth console transition now I've been through. Right. Around this time is, is when uh, studios tend to get acquired because they're looking for people to create, um, you know, original IP only for their platform. Um, yeah, that's where I was going with this. And in, in, um, in the cloud's coming. The cloud is coming? Oh, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that's true. And, that's funny. And, you say the cloud, and I immediately thought clown. And the reason why <laughs> the reason why I thought that is some time ago, I got so annoyed with everyone saying cloud all the time, I actually changed my computer to change the word cloud to clown. Oh, my um, God, that's hilarious. Which, which is great when you see something like put your data in the clown and... Um, you know, yeah, anyways, so, <laughs> uh, yes, but I realize now that you weren't talking about clowns. <laughs> yes, and, and I get it, it's overused, but in, um, yeah. but it, at the same time, you know, there is some merit to, like, platforms, and th those are, that's one of the big obstacles people have with games anyways, you know, you get an Xbox, right. and you got to go through all the setup, so is the audience, mm -hmm. you know, it, it basically self-selects the audience, somebody who's willing to go through that. Which you know, yeah, I understand. Um, but the then with cloud gaming, I'm like, does this expand our audience? And so you know, what is your thoughts on not just cloud, but like the coming evolution? Um, and the subtext that I'm I'm trying to understand is if you talk to the quants, um, the data is that by I think 2023 it should be about a 300 million dollar or billion, sorry, dollar industry. Mm -hmm. You know, but I don't know what the heck that means. Like, how do the numbers break down? Right. And then if you talk to them, they'll say, hey, the industry is growing at 15%. So there are, if I remember right, I had to do this actually for a couple of investors the other day. Um, there are 73,000 uh, jobs in film and games right now. And games is growing at 15%. So we're looking, you know, at a pretty awesome growth market. But again, I don't know exactly what that means. So maybe you know more. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, those numbers are, um, 
confusing and awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's nice to feel like you're, you know, you have sort of a, a future where you're kind of attached to a growth industry. Um, but I think um, the the tricky part with um, the tricky part with those numbers is in the game industry that includes you know a lot of different things. Some of which you know, people might think of as, as sort of console gaming, but a big part of those numbers are probably also mobile gaming. And a big part of mobile gaming numbers are probably like, you know, free to play match three games. Um, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, of course, but that's maybe not what most artists are thinking that they're, they're kind of building their um, portfolios and career growth around, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of, uh, I kind of feel like, um, it, I don't know. It's very tricky, but it definitely is growing. I would say, though, that overall, um, you know, t 10 or 15 years ago, I would say there was less room for indie development, smaller team development. And and to some extent, uh, that's a great place to start if you can get your foot in there because you can get a lot of work experience. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, of course, it probably isn't a stable or pay well in many cases. Um, but, um, you know, it being working in AAA is great, but it can also be a, a little tricky. Um, you know, you might... Um, be on a team of 300 people or a thousand people. And, and that's fantastic if you kind of found your calling and you know exactly what you want to do. But it can also be nice working on a mid-sized team where uh, maybe you have a little more exposure to different areas or different styles. Um, and uh, for me, that's that was, you know, kind of more important than, say, s stability. Um, uh, that being said, Double Fine has been very stable. Uh, we've been very lucky uh, over the years to kind of um, always be able to kind of stay in business with almost no layoffs and uh, have uh, shipped quite a few games. So, um, you know, I guess you never really know. But, um, and, you know, I have uh, a lot of friends who went over to VR a few years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I am personally, um, I really like VR mainly as a, as a creation tool, not so much as a, as a kind of game or content tool. And I use it a, quite a bit in my own work nowadays. Um, but, uh, you know, that was another interesting where there was kind of a gold rush of everyone going over to uh, work on um, VR. And now I really see, like, the, n the number of games that are coming out is kind of dried up. The industry still has a lot of, um, I think, money behind it and a lot of potential growth. But I think everyone's not really sure exactly. I mean, it's not my area of expertise, so I don't want to say too much about it. But um, it's uh, it's one of those that I, you know, I've kind of been paying attention to my friends, and I think they're kind of... Uh, maybe looking around or starting to think like how, how much is this industry going to grow, you know? So yeah, I guess you would never really know <laughs> is what I'm saying. And, and I don't even know if say that those numbers are included as the, the games in the broader games industry, or if that's kind of listed separately in those numbers or, or what. Yeah, I understand. So you might be moving into some area and then that area plateaus. Yeah. Or yeah, so, you know, yeah. Uh, and I know VR was very exciting. Um, but then I know, yeah. yeah some VR people, they've produced independent games, they've gotten awards and, you know, they still can't get a job. Yeah. Um, you know, the sales of the games, um, for most people haven't been there. I think there's this enormous promise of, of how much, um, you know, how much these things could sell. Uh, and so there are a lot of investment, but you know, the, the numbers are been pretty modest in terms of individual sales. Um, I, I really like the hardware. Like I said, I, I actually use it quite a bit for content creation, but, um, you know, content creation is not a billion dollar industry, probably, you know, they're, they're thinking more along the, you know, cell phone numbers in terms of consumers. So, mm -hmm. um, it's not quite where, where it goes. So, yeah, you know, actually, in, we're um, looking at some VR. Yeah. Uh, in Sorry, prep of, of this, I downloaded the game stacking. Oh yeah. Uh, and, uh, love it. 
this fun. Great. And you're like, oh, and it's complete shit. And then I'd go, wait, don't be an asshole. <laughs> no, <laughs> Sorry, hardly. What I wanted yeah. to talk about was the longevity of games. And, and yeah, because this has been going for a while. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, it is interesting. Yeah. I mean, stacking came out in 2011, you know, and it was, um, uh, interesting for me. It was, it was the first, was my first game as a, as a creative director. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, it was after brutal Legends, So I think I wanted a little bit of a palate cleanser. I mean, I, I could do heavy metal school games all day long, but it was kind of nice to do this sort of like, uh, kind of little diorama kind of do Matryoshka doll based, uh, world. Um, and it, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, when we when we came out, it's stack is interesting because it was really like the first title that was designed for digital distribution here at Double Fine. Um, you know, our game before that was Brutal Legend, which was a disc-based game, and um, that was a. And now it's obvious, like everyone's on Steam, and and uh, there's competition now, right, with Epic Game Store and whatnot. Um, but at the time, it was um, it was strange, and I, I remember we won a bunch of awards for the game, but they were all, you know. Um, they would be like, well, best downloadable game or best adventure game, this downloadable game. Like people didn't know what to do with that category of downloadable games because, you know, they, you know, they tended to be smaller games or smaller budget. So um, they got kind of moved around a bit. Um, and the, the interesting thing is, is that uh, we initially shipped just on PS3 and Xbox 360, but over time it's come to other platforms, right? It's on Steam now and Mac and Linux and, I think it's on the Xbox Originals program for the um, Xbox One as well. Uh, and so that's been true of a lot of our digital games is that they've kind of, um, uh, because of digital distribution, you kind of get like a, a long tail revenue from, you know, I, in general, you know, we're not the type of studio that makes a sort of like Call of Duty big giant marketing fanfare game, but all of our games, uh, we kind of try and maintain them and um, over time port them to different platforms so that that intellectual property um, does earn us money over time, and you know we have um, many games now. I don't even know how many games that we have. Uh, I don't know, thirty something like that. And uh, you know most of them are available in digital format on Steam or other stores. Um, so it adds up. I mean, even I was just scrolling through this portfolio here, and I saw Grim Fandango Remastered, and, which was a, another game I worked on, and that was interesting for us because that was, um, you know, Tim Schafer who owns Double Fine Productions, uh, got his start as a game designer and writer in the early days at LucasArts, and this was. Um, one of the games here's what it originally looked like back in the 90s and it was a it was an early adventure game uh where you had uh they had the characters were 3d but all the backgrounds were just flat 2d images with some fake depth buffers so it looked like you're going behind things and that was like the first game that actually had a 3d character like that uh, certainly in the adventure game thing so you can see it's primitive and the characters are you know they're not even skinned there's kind of interpenetrating objects but um that game was kind of loved and uh very old, and we got the rights to kind of remake it. So we we don't want to change it too much, but you can see here's a like the modern version that I helped art direct, where we kept a lot, we kept all the original backgrounds slightly higher res, but then we, um, you know, we made the we kept we kind of up res the characters, and um, but we still kept them in that kind of blocky spirit. But you can see the the lighting model changed. You know, I, we were able to kind of set up some ways of uh, trying to match the lighting better with the sort of fake environments. Um, and that was a, another, like, it was really weird looking at these old assets from the game. And we didn't have access to the original source assets. We actually had to, like, rip them out of the executable and then kind of recreate them. Um, but that was a real fun, fun project to work on. It shows you the longevity. And this game came out in, I, I want to say, 99, I think. Um, and it was a, a big seller. You know, we, we, um, uh, we released it on uh, Steam and PlayStation 4 initially. And uh, it did really well for us. Um, 
So you never know, you know, there's, there's a lot of value in trying to maintain ownership of your own IP as much as you can, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So, uh, but as a medium, I think it's around. Yes. Yeah, uh, maybe that's more achievement by longevity, <laughs> but it just got me thinking about, you know, like uh, how long these things can, can have an impact on people. Yeah. And then that gets me thinking about what, about this art form of games, mm -hmm. um, you know, cause if you were to tell, you know, I tell, um, parents here in uh, in Laguna Beach you know what do they everybody's what do you do what do you do and it's like real estate real estate real estate real estate I train game artists and they're like, what <laughs> then I explain yeah. it to them and then they're like you're the one right you're you're the reason why <laughs> my son is like stuck in Fortnite you know and it doesn't talk to me right. anymore or, or some something like that so like you talk to right. people their exposure is in one direction and there's some strong negative connotation some parts of the culture have towards games and kids sure. um, focusing on games but i you know I, we're in this we see it as an art form um and i guess that's i'd love to just hear your perspective on it as an art form yeah you know um it's interesting a lot of those a lot of the, there's definitely a lot of negative stereotypes surrounding games um the interesting thing you know, most of them are quite outdated, and most of them are from, like, old Gen Xers or boomers who generally are pretty tech clueless anyways. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting, though. They kind of have a bit of a pejorative, like, comic books used to until Marvel movies started making billions of dollars, right, and then became <laughs> kind of uh, more in the public awareness. I feel like games are like that, and people only remember, oh, it's Grand Theft Auto and neck stabbing. And you're like, well, okay, sure. There are those sort of films, too, but when you say movies, people don't only think of that. Um, you know, the average game player is... Uh, in their mid-30s now. That's the average age of a gamer. It's not a, It's not just a kid's medium. So Really? Um, those are all, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, and it's been true for a while now. Um, so I, I think those are uh, those are just stereotypes that just aren't really true any longer. Um, and so those are always worth pointing out when people kind of go that direction. But I think, um, you know, as an art form, um, games are magical. And, I, I you know, I, I don't necessarily... I don't think it's necessarily helpful to say, you know, which is the better art form. Um, but the thing that's interesting about games is they're they're at once engaging because they're interactive, um, and they're contemporary because they're technology based, um, and they're still filled with uh, artistry and art from uh, all sorts of disciplines, you know. And they're especially challenging to make because they're both software and entertainment and art, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and just making a piece of software without any creative goals whatsoever or player feedback or interactivity is extraordinarily difficult. Now you've added all those things plus the artistry and then working with groups of people from all these different disciplines that have to be put together. Um, I, you know, I sort of always feel that, um, and maybe this is just my punk rock aesthetic from when I grew up, but I actually kind of liked that video games weren't approved by people in general. I was actually pretty happy that it was kind of like a fringe art form. I mean, I'm very happy that it's sustained me as a career and I can continue to do it. But part of me likes the fact that they're frowned upon a little bit by people. You know, I don't really want, I didn't become an artist so old people could give me a pat on the back, you know, and if people are saying Game, games, are, games aren't art, I, you know, my general response is, you know, fuck off, honestly, you know, because <laughs> games are art, right? And you can't ever win an argument. There's not like a, like, you can't even agree on a painting. So part of me just doesn't, doesn't care. That being said, of course, you know, like I like to make money uh, from my from my art and be able to sustain it. So I do appreciate that it has broader culture impact. And I do think it's important that there's a diversity of voices making games and a diversity of type of games being made. Um, you know, and if, if you want to play, you know, um, a violent action game, great, you know, but um, 
there's also a lot of other games out there that appeal to different types of people. And I think, um, not, in my opinion, not, you know, no one of them is more or less a game than anything else. And I think um, people interested in gatekeeping or overdefining the medium aren't doing anything to move it forward. Um, you know, just uh, just maybe talk less and make more is my advice. You know, just get in there mm -hmm. and make some stuff. Um, if you want it to be something else, then make something compelling and change the medium that way instead of running your mouth. So um, that's, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about it. But that's for me, great. they're absolutely art. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think that might be a really good moment for us to segue over to your visual frameworks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that. So, you know, I think um, when uh, people kind of ask kind of what, what makes a visual style or kind of what, how do I go about building a visual style for a game? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, have a, I have a couple of frameworks I use. I can kind of show you a little bit about it here. And it's just a way of of kind of thinking about visual style. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there's not a lot of common language with visual style. Um, so you hear people just say, oh, it's it's hyper real or, or cartoony, you know, and right. that's that's fine. It's, but it's not super helpful if you are the one helping build a visual style. So um, uh, I, I can I have a, a framework I use that, and I can show you some examples of how I kind of approach it. So um, I, they're the four Fs is how I call them. Uh, is what I call them. And so we have a uh, frame, form, focus, and filter. And I, I want to say that it's not really important um, exactly what these, uh, how you break it down. I think it's just important to be more thoughtful about it if you're designing a visual style and you want to communicate to the team. So um, mm -hmm. I kind of walk you through how I think about each of these four. Uh, so, so frame is, um, frame is the when and where of your game. Um, you know, I think if you're a writer, this is an obvious thing that you would you would determine like, oh, it takes place in America in 1965. Um, but it's funny how often in games that 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 isn't thought of. And, and obviously that can have a huge impact in style, even if your intent is not to play on the stylistic tenets of the game um, of the era. Um, you know, the incidental props and dress and technology, what have you, still has a has a big impact from that. Obviously, you can go deeper and and read a little bit more about what people were thinking in that era and reflect that in your in your um, visual choices as well. So um, I just have a few examples from games. And none of these are games I've worked on. I very specifically tried to pick some games I didn't work on to sort of uh, show it. So this is um, L.A. Noir, right? Came out a number of years ago. And, um, you know, you can clearly tell that this is set in, um, well, other than the name, of course, but you can really tell it's sort of set in that Art Deco period just based on the cars and the street and the architecture, you know? And um, uh, if you, of course, this is what L.A. actually looked at the time. Um, so they're not exactly identical, but you can kind of see how they... Uh, use that to inform their palette, even though it doesn't match reality at the time. Um, uh, similarly, uh, there's uh, one of my favorite games is this uh, sort of uh, magical realist adventure game called Kentucky Route Zero. And and uh, it is a, a surreal game, so it very specifically doesn't call out um, real world locations other than perhaps Kentucky, right? <laughs> and it speak to eras. Um, but just based on like kind of reconstructing the technology, you notice the 4.3 TV there and some of the dress and the style of houses like, um, I think it's very clearly informed and inspired by the Great Depression and set around that era. And you can see there's some screenshots on the left and uh, some actual photos of the era on the right. You can kind of see some of the connections that they drew there. Um, so uh, uh, form is what most artists talk about a lot. So form is kind of like the um, the shape language, you know, um, of your of your characters and your and your environments and some of your color. Um, and uh, you know, form is. Um, really important, right? You know, um, you can see here, this is a, a shot from uh, Team Fortress, right? But um, 
you know, they were heavily inspired by, I think they've talked about it a lot, but they're heavily inspired by kind of uh, people like uh, JC Leindecker and, and went for a very simplified uh, style that had high readability, but still filled with style. Um, you can see some of their inspirations there. Again, these are quite different than what they actually wound up with. Um, you know, their, their stuff is really optimized for a fast-paced game with high readability, but you can see the inspiration from some of the, the flatness of the, the, the forms. Um, not that they're flat, but the kind of, um, you know, compressed value range, should we say, and, and um, some of the angular shapes that um, he used in his construction. Uh, and uh, you see that uh, this screenshot from the game, you said they, of course, he extended that to the environment as well, right? That, that rock uh, is very much approached with the same shape language as uh, this character here. Uh, focus is, uh, the way I look at focus is it's kind of like the, the thing that you're going to do best. Like, do you have a standout feature or a standout area that you, you really want to um, kind of double down and see if you can kind of connect throughout your game visually? And um, so I think uh, this is uh, another one of my favorite games, uh, Shadow of the Colossus here. And, you know, this game is about a lot of things, um, but it's about scale, right? It's about the, these kind of giant, their focus really, I think, is on communicating the sense of scale, the difference between you as this tiny little character and these massive beasts in the game. Um, and they do it, of course, um, not only by making them, you know, physically larger than one another, or virtually larger, I should say, but they, you know, they design the cameras to really frame the action at all times to emphasize that. So if you're riding around this creature, the focus is on the creature and it kind of swings around it, but it's a low angle with a field of view such that you really feel that scale difference. Um, and it's not just the creatures, right? You know, you can see this type of architecture, these like striking verticals that are filled throughout the game. And there's not a lot of high frequency detail to pull you away from the silhouettes. Um, and, you know, you're left with this, um, the sense of emptiness in some ways, and that's just really kind of this, this scale working there, the kind of you versus this vast environment, big architecture, giant creatures. Now, filter is um, filter is a, a little trickier one to explain, and I guess I sort of think of filter as a sort of lens through which all of your game's visuals are going to be realized. Uh, so it could be like... Um, you know, we want this game as if it was imagined by a serial killer or um, a person um, with some, you know, like a different way of thinking, or maybe it's a watercolor painting. And so, there, you know, all these other elements we've talked about are kind of all run through this this kind of filter. And um, uh, is a screenshot from Hotline Miami, right? And so um, they are very much informed not only by the 80s aesthetic, but also by um, DHS um, VCR aesthetics. You know, there's there's like um, the sort of videotape um, approach to it, not only through the scan lines and the kind of screen resolution, color bleed, um, and but you know that's also for them connecting to their their era, which I don't think the game is necessarily. I don't remember to be honest. I don't remember if it's actually set in the 80s, but so maybe it's not frame in that sense. But the filter is 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 set in that. Um, similarly, I made a game called Headlander, and Headlander was not set in the 1970s. It was set in the future, but it was set in a future that would have been imagined by people in the 1970s. So its filter was 1970s science fiction, even though it's you know set in 2500 or whatever. Uh, this is a game called Child of Light, and I, I mentioned watercolors earlier, and that was you know um, you can see that you know th it's probably set in a you know, I don't know when it's set or where it's set, but their frame has got some sort of fantasy land. Um, they have a very kind of flowing form language here. Um, 
And uh, for Fidelity, they obviously have a lot of high-res textures, but their filter is the way they would have been realized had this been painted in watercolor. And you definitely can see it in motion in the game. They do a lot of uh, subtle things uh, with the motion of the textures and shaders. You can see up close, they even have like watercolor imperfections in some of the character's hair and some of the tooth of the paper that comes in during the depth of field poles and things like that. Um, so they kind of really went down that path. Um, uh, I have a few... Um, examples this is a fallout 3 is a little dated now but i still really like it as an example um that is just gonna i can kind of show you how like again i don't know what the devs were thinking this is just how i would break down the visuals um you know so the the frame of um uh of fallout is uh set uh you know i don't think they're specific about the time frame but it's clearly it's in the future right it's hundreds of years after some sort of a, a nuclear apocalypse um and it's set in America. I mean, it's East Coast, at least Fallout 3. Um, and so that's kind of their frame. Uh, now their um, form is interesting um, because um, talking about their their colors mainly here, you know, they have a lot of um, relatively low poly shapes, which are probably more indicative of, of the um, limitations of a big open world rather than a stylistic focused. However, you know, they uh, made a very, very minimal use of color. Things are quite desaturated um, and uh, part of that works well with a there's actually almost no cast shadows in this game there is some in this screenshot but when it first came out on the xbox and that sort of even treatment of value and low saturation it's just such a great feeling of hopelessness that's a funny thing to say but you know when you're walking i remember when i first played it i was like man they really um they have this sickly pea green color over everything it feels ill playing it um and uh you know, I kind of pull a little palette here so you can see kind of like how limited their palette really is. I mean, it's not monochromatic. There's there's definitely color range moving in there. But um, now the interesting thing about that is that if you look at the characters in that game, um, they're quite saturated. Uh, now, this isn't an, an uncommon technique to maybe help them read off the background. But I think what's, there's actually something more interesting going on here, which is their environment uh, architecture and settings are quite sort of, um, for the time anyways, real world proportions. Um, but their characters are very comic booky, I would say. And, and I think that was a deliberate choice. And I think part of that is um, it does provide a bit of a, a relief. You know, like the game is so, uh, that just if you're just wandering around the environments, it's so dreary that, that they definitely employ humor throughout the game to kind of create a little relief for that. And I think these like highly saturated comic book treatments of these characters do that as well, um, kind of help pull you away from that. Uh, yeah, now their focus is clearly on, you know, giant open world environments. That's what, uh, that's really what at the time, the go anywhere, play anything you want, that was their big focus. And, you know, they have some really interesting silhouettes and things that you can see all the way across the world that kind of attract you to go there. And I think all their limitations of their style kind of really built around this focus. Um, and, you know, I think when they do it well, you wind up getting really cool silhouettes like this as the, uh, the time of day changes. Uh, their filter is an interesting one because, you know, they, they are set like in the future, but their sensibility is um, and again, a future that may be a post-apocalyptic future as if it would have imagined in the height of the Cold War, right? They've got these sort of um, all of their technology, which is clearly something that couldn't have existed in the 50s, but is kind of built as if it had been made in the 50s. And they've got all, um, not only this is the PIP, kind of the player's main device, but they also have it in, um, you know, the signage, right? They've got this sort of like little golden books treatment there, you know, this sort of like, 
you know, the 50s had this sort of like naive take where you could kind of like, you know, all the advertisements were most people, people like children um, and the sort of, you know, hand-painted propaganda that I, I guess people bought into is certainly a satirize at the time, the vault of the future, you know, which is this ridiculous thing. Um, and again, that kind of like um, gives the game, I feel like that's what gives the game its unique spin. I think when I was playing this game, I had to fight a Martin Van Buren robot. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, that, that sets it for me. Um, anyways, how uh, we jumped, we jumped way, way over, and that was weird. Sorry, we kind of, yeah, actually, I have another example if you want to walk through this one real quick. Uh, I can go a little faster if you want. Um, yeah, but this is just an, another game uh, called Guacamelee. Um, there, a, a sequel has since come out, and I really like this game a lot. And um, it's a side-scrolling action uh, game, and um, it's made by a studio called, I believe they're called Drinkbox Studios. And um, it's really fun game where it's uh, kind of a melee um, game, and you play this character. So it's clearly set... Um, as you play it, you really understand that it's set in Mexico, and um, I think the towns are hypothetical. I, I don't quite remember. Uh, and, you know, they don't really ever say the era, but I think, you know, looking at the technology through the game, um, you know, you don't see a lot of cars or televisions or something. And so it, it kind of struck me as as being set in the kind of like early 20th century, maybe late 19th century or mid-19th century is kind of the vibe I got from that. That obviously informs a lot of the things you're seeing on the screen right now. Um, and their uh, their form language, you can see that's their characters on on the left because you do play a luchador, you do play a Mexican wrestler uh, in the game, and there's uh, a lot of uh, it's it's quite funny all the different moves that they do. But you know, for me, that reminded me a lot of uh, Samurai Jack and some of those other uh, Tartakovsky uh, sort of animations where they had a strong sense on uh, of angular form and flatness. Um, there's been a lot of stuff that's come out since then, but this was one of the ones that really kind of like reminded me a lot when I was playing the game. Um, of their shape language. Uh, and I think they're, um, you know, they have both um, in terms of focus, they have a couple things going on. So th in the game, you can switch between the living world and the dead world, the day of the, you know, sort of what we would probably now associate with Dia de los Muertos, the day of the dead. And um, what's interesting is um, not only does the palette shift, so it's very clear to the player, but what you can do uh, on the game uh, mechanics side can switch and you can see some of the characters switch so like some of the people who are sort of a flesh and blood down below or actually have like a skeletal representation or perhaps their ancestors um, but that is basically means that they are doing double art right for every scene so um, uh, that was obviously a big focus for them and, and as a player you can you can switch between them uh, on the fly uh, and their filter is is interesting because I think uh, on the one hand um, there's there's kind of two main ones going on there's the you the Day of the Dead uh, sort of themes, the the afterlife, and uh, that's also part of their focus. But um, you know, it it, um, it goes a little bit beyond that, you know, in terms of making this sort of feel. It's not just that it exists as a focus of having two levels. It's like you know they try to communicate spirit and dream world in a variety of ways with the visuals, um, and they also have all the wrestling stuff going on, which is a really interesting combination. Um, you know, it's not too intuitive, but it actually works really well. So you know they. Not only is your main character uh, a luchador, and uh, are you sort of like the story is kind of based around uh, that on some extent, but when you go to fight a boss, they do these kind of like uh, framings of the UI, almost like it's an actual wrestling match, uh, where they kind of like slide in and everything, and have kind of a, a cool like silkscreen poster vibe to it. Yeah, so there's my little little F, my little four Fs breakdown um, on awesome. uh, our style. And All my right, so uh, beautiful self-portrait. Yeah. Let me unpack that a little bit and see. Yep. 
Um, because as I was mentioned to you earlier, one of the big uh, things that we deal with at Game Art Institute, one of the things I'm, you know, for me, it's all about the job. And and as I've been, we've been doing this and we've been interfacing with people, you know, a, a lot of times it comes down to a pretty picture, mm-hmm. which, you know, for a lot of us artists, we're like, you know, especially for, let's say the environment artists, they're like, they're learning um, you know, all about the PBR workflows. We're learning about substance designer. We're learning about lighting, unreal. And, you know, and then right. there's Houdini and then there's all these procedural modeling and then procedural texturing. So there's like a million things for us to, to focus on, but right. then somebody comes in and they judge everything on whether or not it's a pretty picture um, at the end. Right. Of the day. And, um, yeah. you know, so that's maddening. And I understand it from the artist perspective, but I also understand it from the uh, recruiter perspective. Cause sometimes these are, you know, HR, maybe they, they don't have an art background. They don't know all the ins and outs. Like, oh, you did that in Houdini as opposed to you bought the asset. Like, I don't know. I don't right. care. You know, your lighting sucks. So, no. Right. Um, so, along those lines, if we talk about uh, frame, form, focus, filter, and all of that, uh, mm-hmm. what is it that a game artist aspiring could be character, could be environment, what is it that they should be thinking about when they present their work and and maybe this is easier to answer by saying what are the common mistakes i don't know mm-hmm. yeah it's inter- i mean i i guess there's so many different ways to answer that question so there's there's a couple of pragmatic ways that i'll answer it and then yeah. i think there's a, a few more philosophical ways that okay. um, i do actually have some slides on that as well but you know so there's kind of two questions here one's about what is the real role of art in video games right mm-hmm. and therefore the role of the artist which is a more philosophical side and mm-hmm. then there's the like, okay, uh, how do I, you know, what do I put in my portfolio and what do I not put in my portfolio and how can I sell, you know, me as an right. individual? Um, yeah. And so, you know, kind of talking about that one first. Um, yeah, you do have to have some pretty images. Um, but I also say that um, it's, it's also important to have some images that kind of dissect your work in an important way. So I see a lot of, you know, really high-res sculpts and um, some nice, like, key shot renders of a high-res sculpt maybe in, in orbit. And that's a great right? Like that's put that at the top of your page. People get excited by it. But if someone clicks on that, um, who is an art director or something, be a wireframe too. They need to see, you understand topology. Um, you know, they need to see, um, you know, some textures. If you're the ones who's done the textures and, and UV work, um, you need to present that. And, you know, you could, you can present it really dryly. Um, and I think it's okay to be straightforward with it, but, you know, you can also, you can also have a nice um, presentation there as well, uh, and that's that, that. I don't think you need to do anything too fancy, where you have to like, you know, be like a film VFX reel, where they pause the frame and pull it all out and stuff. Because ultimately, you know, your your portfolio should be clear and easy to navigate and look at. If it's uh, surrounded with like ridiculous graphic design and crazy transitions, uh, people will just stop looking at it. <laughs> like they they won't. So so don't make it too fancy, but make it nice nicely well presented. So a, a common practice you see nowadays is um, people who are specializing in something like substance designer. And, you know, they'll have a nice like spherical ball render of their material. Um, you see this all over the place in ArtStation. And it's got, um, you know, it's probably got some displacement. So it's not completely flat. And that's fine. I think that's a good thing, you know, but right underneath that, you should show what those flat textures look like as well. And maybe if you want to do a little tiny picture of your node graph, that's fine too. But, you know, you start off with this really sexy thing um, that doesn't misrepresent it, but shows it in the best possible light. And then, but right underneath that, you show that you're technically adept enough 
to understand what it took to build this, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in general, that's how I would say to approach it. Um, similarly, if you're a concept artist and um, you know you don't necessarily like want to fill your portfolio with nothing but thumbnails, right? But if, at the, on the other side, you don't necessarily want to have nothing but huge, you know, big photo bashed mood paintings. And someone's like, can they can they even draw? Like, wh where are their where's their iteration? So, you know. Um, again, a common practice there. An art station makes this easy, right? Like, I don't, I don't think I have great examples because I'm not uh, new to the industry, so I don't tend to put my portfolio like this. But mm -hmm. you know, you if you, um, a lot of times people will kind of like, um, I might have a few examples in here, but it's not something I generally do a lot of. Um, but you know, they might have like, okay, here's my piece, and then yeah, so I have a little bit here. Like this one, I actually modeled in tilt brush before I painted on it, so I have like a little quick video just to show like this, like really. You know, here's this really primitive thing I slapped together in VR, right? But it's, you know, obviously not as nice as like um, a, a well-painted thing. And and I think mm -hmm. sometimes I'll put sketches or, or working drawings underneath it. So if someone drills down into it, they can see that. But at a quick glance, you're like, oh, it's colorful, polished images. Um, but I don't hide it if someone's like evaluating you as a character artist. Be like, hey, here's some character renders. Where the, where's the rest of the stuff? So, you know, they'll probably click on, click on your best looking pieces. So put some of those those uh, construction things underneath there. If you're an environment artist, um, you know, you can, um, similarly, if you, it, I mean, it, actually environment art is a whole separate discussion too, because there's a difference between an environment artist and an object artist. And a lot of people don't quite understand that those are very different jobs to apply for, even though they have overlap in modeling skills. So we could talk about that too, but I think, you know, my point is put your sexy, splashy image up there, but then also show some construction images below it. Uh, but don't put a page of text up there. No one's going to read it, probably. <laughs> you know, if you're applying for a very specific technical position, perhaps. But a lot of that stuff can come out in, in the interview. You know, when you if you your foot in the door and you have a phone interview, um, understand who you're talking to. If you're talking, ask what they do there, because they may not tell you. And if they're like, oh, I'm the recruiting manager here, well, then don't, you know, spend all your time talking to the recruiting manager about how you optimize your UV packing. Probably don't know or care. What you need to do is is about how passionate you are for what you do, talk about some very high level approaches or why you chose the pieces you did, and you know don't be an asshole, right? Be spoken as much as you can, and talk about um, the types of things you like. So, but then if you're talking to you know, detail about your process, that's something I they don't have a good answer for it. I'm always disappointed, which is what's your process? And if the problem, I don't know, I can slam some polygons in there and move this around. Lee, I'm losing you. Hold so you got to have a better answer. And at that point, oh, can you hear me? Yeah, it's um, coming Hello? in and out though. Yeah, one sec. Oh, uh, sure. Okay. Maybe it was just the text, uh, the audio. All right, sorry, keep going. So we kind of lost yeah, yeah. you. Um, uh, there was the, uh, maybe they're the, uh, HR, the head HR recruiter. They're the head of that. And yeah, I was just, yeah. If you're, if you're talking to someone who's kind of a recruiter first on your, like a phone screen, don't mm -hmm. bog them down with details. Right. Um, you know, um, talk about your interest in the position and the job and, and, and why, why you make what you make, but on a very high level. But if you're talking to a, an art director or a, an artist in your area that you want to be in, you know, be prepared to talk about your process and um, why you approach the work and, and, you know, share some mm -hmm. of your technical knowledge or, or love of the craft in a more detailed way. 
Yeah, I love that. Actually, one of my mentors, one of the things he says over and over and over again is know who um, know who you're talking to and know what you want from them. And right. that that's kind of the key. So in a job interview, if you're talking to an artist, yeah, get processed. But you start talking to an artist, somebody who's head of recruiting and they're not an artist and you start talking about procedurals, uh, you know, it's not going to work. Yeah. All right. Um, any questions, guys? Make sure you ask them real quick. Uh, and I'd like to end with a question um, that I think is kind of at the heart of the, I don't know, it's, it's at the heart of a lot of the misunderstandings um, that we all have around art. Um, but do you think um, your success comes from hard work, from talent, from luck, or some combination of? Mm. Yeah, I mean, all of the above, right? Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd say that, you know, definitely luck and, and privilege is a part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time, you can't control that. So maybe don't worry about it, <laughs> right? There's probably nothing you can do. If it's truly luck, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Um, and if, if we describe talent as something you're born with or not, well, there's probably nothing you can do about it, that either. But what you can control is hard work. And hard work doesn't necessarily mean... Um, hours. It means working intently and thoughtfully and trying to improve. Um, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of aspects of that. You know, uh, It's very hard for all of us to be open to feedback and taking criticism. Um, it never, I don't feel like it ever gets easy, <laughs> you know, but I do feel like it's important to be open to that and not super defensive about what you do. Um, I think um, you can always, there's, it's so easy nowadays to continue, have continuing education for so many talented artists are willing to put their stuff up for free online and there's that you can learn from um, even someone who's maybe not any better and broad uh, broadly speaking than yourself will probably know techniques you don't know or approach things slightly differently um, so i think just having an interest in continually learning or being curious will i think that's a really a, a important aspect of, of of sort of working hard if you will um, mm -hmm. And I, I guess I'd say that's, you know, when I would sometimes early in my career, I was on a lot of canceled projects like they got would get canceled. And that's not super uncommon in the games and certainly the film industry where it doesn't maybe go beyond pre-production. And you're almost never in control of that. But the one thing I could be in control of is I could I could say that I'm going to improve as an artist in project somehow, even in some small way. I can be in control of that. They can't take that away from me if it doesn't get canceled. Maybe I can't work but i'm still going to be faster at what i do or more knowledgeable or maybe i've learned a new skill or just better um, and that's like the one thing you can control so i would say focus on that and um you know hopefully hopefully you, the rest of the things fall in line um and you get you get lucky and you're in a good position you now i've been fortunate and mike still be working in it but um uh, that's what i focus on anyways got it that's awesome uh, Lee, thank you so much, man, for taking the time out and uh, sharing your wisdom and your advice. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. Have an awesome day. And you can find him at leepetty.com, P-E-T-T-Y, and uh, and also at ArtStation. What's your ArtStation? Uh, I think it's just – I should know. It's just L. Petty, I think. There yeah. you go. Yeah. All right. Again, man, thank you so much. That was awesome. Absolutely. All right. Take Thanks care, everyone. guys. Yeah. Bye.
All right, thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I wanna ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.